Good morning. We're going to be looking this morning in our Bible study period of topic of characteristics of growing churches. Let's begin our our discussion in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we read about Peter as he preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. We read of him preaching along with the other apostles of Jesus Christ and him resurrected from the dead. We read about how that the things that they were doing were by the power of the Holy Spirit that had been promised them as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And that day, those who gladly received His Word, they were baptized. Three thousand souls were added to them. Verse 47, in the King James, New King James Version, and, and some other translations, it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. That's amazing. That's amazing that people were being added every day to the Lord's church. We read in chapter 3 of how that that number grew to be 5,000. And then when we come down to Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, he speaks about how that believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so because of the gospel being preached, the work that the apostles and others were doing, the church was growing by leaps and bounds. And it thrills us. We, we can't help but be excited when we read of the growth of the early church, how people were turning to the Lord. People were being cleansed of their sins, and the church consequently was growing as people were being added to it. That's what we want, isn't it? We want the church to grow. It's not because we want to be the biggest church in town. We want to be the biggest congregation among the Lord's people. It's because we want people to be saved. Amen? We want people to be saved, and so by that we want those consequences, just as the Lord does, that when they're saved, they're added to the Lord's church. And so, what we're going to do this morning in our study, again, there's nothing deep, nothing profound, and nothing new to you. Just reminders, and again, trying to get to the heart of the matter, and directly to our hearts of the matter, is that we see what the Lord wants the church to be so that we are what He wants us to be. And then when people come in and they visit us, they see the Lord's church. They see the Lord's true church in not only its teachings, but in the atmosphere that exists among us. And so, studies have been done throughout the generations. Each generation, there are surveys, there are statistics that are offered, and we we look at what people are looking for in churches. And sometimes we can accommodate them. When it's what the Scriptures teach, and that's what we're, they're looking for, we can accommodate them. We ought to be what the Bible uh, shows us that the church ought to be, and thus that is appealing to people sometimes when they are looking uh, for the Lord. They want to put God in their lives. Then there are studies and there are statistics offered of what churches are doing that are growing. I want to tell you this morning, for the last couple of generations, and when I say that, I'm talking about maybe this last generation. We might go back into the one before it. It's really surprising what people are looking for and the characteristics of churches that are growing. It may not be what we think. I kind of clued us in last night. I think I'd mentioned this last night. 
that there are people that are leaving churches today because of the concerts, because of the Christian rock music, because of the entertainment scene, because they are not getting the Bible. They are not finding God in those churches. Some are staying. It appeals to many. This is not a blanket statement. It's not that people are leaving the churches in droves and they're looking for what the Bible teaches about a church, but there's some that are. And so let's take a look at the characteristics today of growing churches. The first one I want us to consider is that churches that are growing are Bible-based, have Bible-based teaching. We would think that it's because they're watering the message down. We would think that the fast-growing groups are making it easy for everyone and people that does appeal to them. It does appeal to some people. But when they've had enough of it, when they spend years there and they realize we're getting nowhere in our knowledge, we don't know God, it's just been a feel-good feeling. They begin to leave those churches. The churches that are retaining their members and that are growing are churches that have Bible-based teaching. Now, let me say, I'm using this term accommodatively. We know what Bible-based teaching is. We want to teach the Word accurately. We want to teach the Word in truth. But for those groups that have preachers who tell a half dozen stories with a couple of Scriptures, that's what we're talking about. Those churches don't retain their members, at least some of them, for a long period of time. But the churches where people are coming and they're digging into the Word and they're learning about God, those churches are indeed growing. So studies indicate, again, that churches uh, uh, that emphasize Bible teaching are the ones that are truly growing and retaining their members. And so this should not surprise us because... It's only God's Word that can satisfy, that can truly satisfy our souls. Let's go back in the book of Psalms in Psalm 19. In Psalm 19 and verses 7 through 11. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. Now, understand as we're all turning over there that when people attend church, they're looking for different things. Some are looking for the entertainment. Some are just looking for a place to meet people and to have that feeling of community. But some are looking for Bible teaching so that they can learn what the Bible teaches, so that they can learn God's will and, and come to know Him. And, and this is uh, no surprise because this is how God has designed it, that the Word satisfies our soul. Verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. <clears throat> the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in, in keeping them, there is great reward. How many of you were singing as I was reading that passage? We can't help but think of that beautiful song that, that we sing from time to time. But yet what we see is it is the Word of the Lord that satisfies the soul. When we play church, when congregations and denominations play church and they're not digging into the Word and teaching it accurately, it's not satisfying the soul. I'll talk about a couple later on this afternoon in our report. But there is a couple that we have studied with and that we baptized, and they have seemingly truly been converted. 
They spent about seven or eight years in a denomination there in the Springfield area. And when they left it, they left it because they were not satisfied. They were left after seven, eight years feeling empty because they weren't teaching the Bible. They weren't using God's Word to satisfy what they were looking for. They left that group and they went to the West Side Christian Church, the largest group in Springfield of about 3,000 people. And just to give you an idea of the West Side Christian Church, they canceled their services one day because the fog machine wasn't working. They left that church unsatisfied. Nancy told us that on the visitor's card or on the card that they pass out, several times she had asked questions, Bible questions, and never once got a response. Several times she asked for someone to come to their home and to study with them and never got a response. It's the Word of God that satisfies the soul. We understand that. And Jeremiah, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16 as we continue this thought. <clears throat> Jeremiah 15 and verse 16. <clears throat> he says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I am called, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I consumed your word, he saying. I internalized your word, and it was the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. We don't draw back, and we don't offer apologies for teaching the word of God. For making that our main focus because it is indeed through the Word of God that we come to know our God and that our souls are indeed satisfied. And so, as we are commanded, you and I, if we want to be a church that is what the Lord wants it to be and we want to grow, we need to preach the Word. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul, the Spirit through Paul, gave this command. He said, preach the Word, be instant, in season, out of season, convinced, Resort, uh, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, he says, till I come, give attention to reading. And we understand that that word reading there in the original language is one that carries with it the idea of public reading. People didn't have Bibles. They didn't have apps on their phone. If you will, authoritative copies of the Scriptures were not cheap. You know what a scribe was? A scribe was someone who was employed to make copies of the Scriptures. And so, even the letters, surely, surely people could take that letter and make themselves a copy as the New Testament was being revealed. But most of those Scriptures were in the gathering place. And so they came together for the public reading of the Scriptures. Till I come, your focus, you give attention on the reading of the Word of God. And then in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, when Paul gathered together with the Christians, when he gathered together with the Christians at Troas, it says, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. What was the focus? I have heard 
conservative brethren who said, maybe someday we will come to understand that preaching doesn't have to be the focus of our worship. We'll have more praise and we'll have more singing and the message will become secondary. He says, till I come, give attention to reading. Make that a focal point. Paul continued his message until midnight. I'm not suggesting to you that we have to have a certain ratio. But when we put the Word of God in the background, we're going to grow weak. We're going to create an atmosphere. And then we're going to deteriorate. Growing churches are churches that have Bible-based teaching. In the early church, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. The early church was growing by leaps and bounds. And the people were devoting themselves to the teaching, to the doctrine. Another characteristic of growing churches is that there is an atmosphere of love. I've only been with you, if you will, for a few hours. And I know that last night you had a lot of visitors among you, and so it's hard to get a feel in just a few hours And when you have many visitors among you. And there's excitement for what we are doing this weekend. But what I've seen so far is good. You are a friendly. You are a warm group. I do see you greeting one another and talking with one another. And it looked like last night you couldn't run you off with a stick after a half hour, 45 minutes. And so I think that you have that atmosphere, at least from what I'm seeing here. You have that atmosphere of love. It's crucial to God's people. And it's crucial to the growth of a congregation. And in, in Springfield, everywhere that I've always been, along with the brethren... I've always emphasized that atmosphere of love. I've always emphasized that we need to be a loving people, that we need to preach the truth in love. We need to, and and we in the congregations that I've been and now at Springfield, we are a hugging congregation. Some people aren't comfortable with that, and that's fine. We don't force ourselves on people that aren't comfortable with hugging. But he said in the New Testament, greet one another with a holy kiss. As that was their custom to kiss one another, he says you make sure that that kiss is pure. You make sure that that kiss is a holy kiss without any lustful motives and intents. As we hug one another, we emphasize it had better be a holy hug, a pure hug. Just a Christian, a brother and sister who are hugging one another. And if I can be a little direct for a moment, be careful how those bodies touch. This is a hug of brotherly love. But we emphasize love among us. And when we get somebody that comes in among us, and they have a prunish attitude, they have bitterness, they are divisive, we don't let that go on for very long. We want an atmosphere of love. True love. Genuine, brotherly, Christian love. And so, churches that are growing are those that possess an atmosphere of love. And this is, again, no surprise because it's what the Lord instructs His people. In John chapter 13, Jesus left His apostles with this instruction. John chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so don't let me give you the wrong impression that I think that this 
atmosphere of love, of hugging one another, this warmth and this friendliness is the extent of the love that we are to have for one another. It's part of it, but it's not the extent. The love that we are to have for one another is a sacrificial love. It is a love of putting the other person first, that we meet one another's needs, whatever those legitimate needs may be, that we will give of ourselves to one another. We need that kind of an atmosphere of love, and not just a facade, not a manufactured atmosphere, but a true atmosphere of love. As Jesus loved His disciples, so we also are to love one another. We looked last night in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 that love is a result of us being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22, he says, There, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, insincere, some translations say unto sincere or genuine love of the brethren, love one another fervently with the pure heart. In God's design, you cannot but help to love one another because our God is love. He has showered us with what great love, what immense measure of love that He showered upon us. And how can that not bear the fruit of love? Love for His family, love for His church. And as we talk about that sacrificial level of love, we see it demonstrated back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. He says, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and neither did anyone say, excuse me, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Someone with the wrong motive may say, aha, it's your responsibility to give to me. It's your responsibility to help me out. Boy, have they missed what the Lord is talking about. But let's lay that aside for a moment, someone who might try to take advantage of the situation. And that ought not to hinder us from loving one another sacrificially. They were selling their properties even, the Scriptures tell us, to meet the needs of one another. That's sacrificial. And we say, if it came down to it, I would sell my extra properties. And I liken it to what I often say about love. As we are to love not only in word and in deed, it's we often say as we are to give our lives for one another as Christ set the example. And we say, if it came down to it, I would die for the brethren. But how oftentimes do we miss giving a cup of cold water? And I thought about you last night, Monty. You'll not lose your reward. <laughs> giving just the small things. We miss those. We'll do the big thing. I'll give my life for the brethren if I have to. And we miss the small things. We are to be sacrificial in our love to one another. And so as we just mentioned, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18, it's not a philosophy. It ought not to be a simply a doctrine that we agree with. It ought to be our practice. Notice in 1 John 3 and verse 18, he says, My little children, let us, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let us truly love. Let us put our, our convictions of love into action. Caring for one another. Meeting one another's needs. And yes, expressing that in warmth and friendliness and affection. If we do not have love, 
he tells us plainly that we do not belong to God. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, if we do not love, if we don't learn to truly love, then we don't know the God that we have professed to believe in and follow. Verse 7, Beloved, let us not love... Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so if we don't learn to love, to love the way that God, Jesus said, you love one another as I have loved you. Let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. If we don't learn to love, then we do not belong to God. Our efforts are meaningless. We may be one of the best song leaders. We may do an awesome job, if I can use the word uh, uh, in that way. We may do an excellent job in teaching Bible classes. We may even teach people and bring them to conversion in Christ Jesus. But if we don't truly have love in our hearts, all of it is futile. And Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In verses 1-3, through three, after talking to them, there's a problem he's telling them during that age of miraculous gifts. You're, you're, you're exalting yourself, you're glorying, you're boasting, if you will, in your gift of speaking in tongues. And he says, you are, you are, are putting yourself above others and, and these gifts are important and I want you to have these gifts. I want you to desire them earnestly, but I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to show you something, he says at the end of chapter 12, that's more important than spiritual gifts. He says in verse 1, he says verse chapter 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. It's useless if I don't have love in my heart. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Oh, it may have been benefit to the recipients, but it profits me nothing, he says. Because if we do not love, we do not belong to God. And if there is a congregation that has not understood the importance of love, has not promoted it and has not nurtured it among them. I'll show you a congregation that you give them enough time and they're going to collapse. You give them enough time and they're going to bite and devour one another because they don't understand the importance of love. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15, he speaks there about that the most important thing is faith working through love. And then he says in verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Love will guard that off. If I love, I'm not going to brush a sin under the rug. If I love, I'm not going to brush an annoyance under the rug. If it's a small one, sure. We do that in our families all the time. But love doesn't mean that we overlook sin. And difficulties, it means that because of love we address them. And if we don't address them, and we don't create that atmosphere of love, we will bite and devour one another and be consumed by one another. So it comes as no surprise that churches that are growing are those who have a true atmosphere of love. 
In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another. Have that love that is flaming and not in a, uh, not in a, a, a small way, not in a meaningless way. Have a true love that is truly fervent, that is on fire for the Lord, His church, one another. Another thing that might surprise us about growing churches is that they, they have an atmosphere and they teach commitment and conviction. Once again, we make some assumptions because there are churches that are growing. But again, they don't often retain their members. But it's not the majority of growing churches that minimize sin, that minimize conviction, and you just come and you go as you will. We make assumptions that those are the big ones, those are the fastest growing ones, and they have the lion's share of Christianity, and I say that in big, huge quotes. It's those that require commitment. It's those that teach on conviction. I'm not endorsing the man and I'm not endorsing his book, but Rick Warren in the Purpose Driven Church spoke about that. We understand the Scriptures and what God teaches is more important, but I'm just simply illustrating that among denominations. They talk about how that before anyone's allowed to place membership in their church, they have to go through discipleship classes and they have to learn the commitment that's involved in being a Christian and understand the commitment that they're making to their congregations. Does that surprise you about Rick Warren and the Saddleback Church? They require commitment and conviction, but they're not our standard. I'm just using that to illustrate God and His church and His Word is our standard that we use. But again, just simply an illustration. It's only with total commitment, and this makes uh, a perfect sense to us, that growing churches are going to require what the Lord requires. And it is only with total commitment that we can truly be Jesus' disciples. In Luke chapter 4, excuse me, 14, in Luke chapter 14, read with me verses 26 through 33. Luke 14, 26 through 33. Let's start in 25. 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And any and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's total commitment. Verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, here's the point. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's calling for a total commitment. It's as we sing the song. It's not to be some of him and some of us or all of us and none of him. It is to be all of him and none of us. We're bought, we're purchased by the blood of Christ. We no longer belong to ourselves. And as Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. 
we are to give ourselves completely to Him and to His will. And so, growing churches, they have members who are convicted and excited about the work. I have met people, Greg, have people ever come across to you, whether we're seeing it wrongly or not, have they ever come across to you that you're fortunate that I showed up today? I think some people do that. And they don't even realize the attitude that they have and what's being portrayed. You know, you're lucky I'm here today. I could have stayed home, you know, but I chose to come. Shame on them. We are to be totally committed. We are, we are, we are bought and purchased by the Lord. And we ought to have a excitement and conviction about the Lord's church. You can see that in a church. You can see that in a congregation. Have you ever gone to visit? Maybe you're on vacation and you visit another church of the Lord's people. Or you go to a gospel meeting and there's just a somberness. There's just a lackadaisical atmosphere. They're not excited that you're there. Somebody may come up and say hello to you, but the atmosphere is clear. It's no big deal to them. There's a church up in the central Illinois area that's on its last leg. One of the members, when we went there and visited, he said, oh, it's just a matter of time till we'll have to close the doors. What a shame! We're the Lord's people! We're the Lord's church. We know the Lord, do we not? We have the truth. We can help people to be saved. But it's just a matter of time. We'll be closing our doors. We ought to be excited. We ought to have a conviction about this congregation. We ought to have a conviction about the Lord's people and what we as the Lord's people have to offer. And so, we ought to be actively telling others. We ought to be actively inviting. We ought to be spreading the Word and, and, and helping the church to grow. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, and I find it very interesting that Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonian brethren and the congregation, if, if, if what commentators suggest is correct, this congregation was only about six months old when he wrote this first epistle. And notice what he says about them. I think I'll back up to verse 6. But we're going to focus on verse 8, or at least see our point there. He says, And you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy and of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. They were six months old. Paul says, hey, there are some brethren up in Thessalonica. Yeah, we heard about them already. Goes to another place. Yeah, we heard about them already. The Word of the Lord was sounding forth from them. They were excited about what they had found. The truth of God's Word. They were excited about the salvation they had in Jesus. And they turned from their idols to serve the true and the living God and to wait for Him from heaven. Let's read on verse 9 for that very point. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and the living God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Have we turned from the world? Have we turned from the sins that, that have enthralled us? And we are excited. We're waiting for Jesus to return. Somewhat similar to what we talked about last night. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven, so don't hurry up, Lord. 
They were waiting for Jesus. They were excited about His return. And thus, they were excited about the assemblies. They were excited to come together, no doubt. And we ought to be the same. We ought to have that same conviction among us. They were spreading the Word. They were active in the Lord's service. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, after the stoning of Stephen, the persecution that arose, it says, and therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. In chapter 10 and verse 24, when you look at the example of Cornelius, an angel appeared to him. And an angel said, send over to Joppa and get Simon Peter and he will tell you words that you need to hear. And later on in chapter 11, he says, he'll tell you words by which you and all your household can be saved. And so, as the servants had gone over to Joppa to find Peter and to bring him back, Cornelius was busy. And he was busy inviting his family and his close friends to come and to hear these words by which they could be saved. Do we have that same enthusiasm? Come to services on Sunday. Come to a Bible class we're having on Thursday night in our home. Do we have that enthusiasm? You can be saved. Now, we're not going to be bouncing off the walls and, and, and maybe saying, but, but sometimes we do. Because we are genuinely and truly excited about that we have been saved and people can be saved as well. And so, Cornelius, he had that enthusiasm. Even though he was not yet a Christian, but he knew that he was about to hear what he needed to do to be saved. And so, each of us, brethren, we need to be committed. Our focus in this life ought to be, what can I do for the Lord's church How can I help people to be saved? So each one of us need to do our part. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 4, as he's speaking in context about those who are spiritual, restoring one who has has, uh, uh, been caught up in sin. But he gives a principle in verse 4. But let each one of you examine his own work, and then you will have rejoice, he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. It happened to me again. You ever stop to help someone, their car breaks down on the side of the road or in an intersection, and you see the poor guy that he's there behind his door and he's trying to push the car all by himself, or his wife's at the wheel and he's back there struggling to push the car out of the intersection, and you stop and you give him a hand and you start pushing, and you're pushing harder and harder and you look over, this guy's got a hand laying on the back of the car. Wait a minute. That's happened to me several times. It happened just the other day up in Springfield. And I'm pushing, and I look over, and I said, okay, here we go again. So I just kind of backed off a little bit, and the guy realized, hey, the car's not moving that well. When he started pushing, I started pushing. Each one needs to bear his own load. And so we ought not to do that in a congregation. Push. Do your part. Bear your own load. Because we are excited, we are committed, we belong to the Lord, We are His church. That's what the Lord tells us, doesn't He? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek the kingdom, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. It's easy to get out of balance. It's easy to get distracted. And sometimes we can get lazy. But the most important thing in our lives should be the Lord's kingdom, His church. The last thing I'd like to offer this morning is that 
Growing churches have meaningful worship. Remember we talked yesterday about how that the two most important things that people are looking for when they visit a church is their love in the congregation. They don't want you to come up and to flood them and to overwhelm them. They're visitors. They just want to look. They want to observe. And so you might keep that in mind when you have visitors. Let a few people at a time take, take, give them their space, but make them feel welcome. But they want to see you interacting with one another. But the second thing that they're looking for, the most important, is are these people genuine? Are they sitting there with a blank stare on their face? Are they just filling their time? Just imagine with me, if you will, some of the scenarios. We see it in the Lord's church, that church that, well, it's just a matter of time until we're going to close the doors. We went there and there was a singing. And the atmosphere, the fellas stood up there. Just one of the things that happened. The fellas stood up there in the singing, he said, well, do you all want to sing number 311? I don't remember the number, just picked one. You want to sing number 311? Nah, I don't want to sing that one either. Let's look over here. What? <laughs> this is the Lord's service. We are before His presence. We're bowed before His throne, if you will, and worship to Him. And it was an atmosphere of, I wouldn't be happy there. I wouldn't be growing there. People walk in and they visit our services. And they want to see that we are engaged and we are involved. They want to see us with meaningful worship. That when we're singing, we're pouring out our hearts to God. And that's the way it ought to be. When, when the preacher's preaching, Greg, when the preacher's preaching, they want to see some conviction. They want to see some enthusiasm and not showmanship. They want to know that this fellow believes what he's preaching. They want to see meaningful worship in a congregation. And so, growing churches place a great emphasis upon their worship. And let me say this as a side point. I don't care what the Pentecostals do. I don't care what the Charismatics do. And I don't care what the Catholics do. You name it. I don't care what they do. I want to know about what the Lord wants me to do. And if there is a thank you, if there is a good point, I'm going to call out, Amen. And that's scriptural. We see it right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. How will they say Amen at your giving of thanks if they do not know what you're saying? What does that imply to us? Their practice was to say Amen. We see it in many places, but I'm just using that as an illustration. I want to pour out my heart when we're worshiping God. I want to be on my knee in prayer if, if, if that's fitting and appropriate. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care in a certain sense. I don't care if it's scriptural and if it's right. We need to emphasize this is not just meeting together for Sunday worship. This is worship. We're in the presence of our God. And so, one of the primary purposes for our assembling is to worship our God. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 that we noticed just a few moments ago, it says that Paul gathered with them on the first day of the week and he continued his message until midnight. As they were assembled together, what were they doing? They were doing spiritual things 
They were involved in worship. They broke bread and they had preaching for sure that we know about in that scenario. But notice with me in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. And in this context, it's talking about how that Jesus was made like His brethren. And the focus of this quote is that He calls the Christians His brethren. And He says in verse 12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. Notice what He says here. He didn't just say, I will sing to you. I will sing praise. We are praising God. We are worshiping God when we come together into His presence. And so, we need to emphasize, brethren, let's worship our God. Let's pour out that reverence that we've talked about having in our hearts. And when we worship, brethren, it should be to the best of our ability. That's not just the man up front, though it needs to be to the best of his ability. And that's not just Greg preaching that it needs to be the best of his ability. It's everybody that is assembled here. We need to worship to the best of our ability. We need to give God our absolute best. In Psalm chapter Psalm 9, in Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2, Notice with me as David, and, and I'm amazed when I read through the Psalms, you want to learn how to worship with uninhibited worship, with uninhibited efforts that praise God, to, to make a shout to the Lord. You'll find it in the book of Psalms. Not in some manufactured facade and some disorganized way, but in an orderly way. You see a man who is pouring out his heart because he understands who God is. In verse 1, I will praise you, O Lord. With my whole heart I will tell of your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. This Does this not read, does this not tell us that He is reaching down into the depths of His soul to bring out the best that He has in praising and worshiping our God, our Creator. In Psalm 66 and verses 1-5, through 5, Psalm 66, verses 1-5, through 5, He says, Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out, and maybe our shout might be, Amen. Sing out to the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in His doing and in His doing toward the sons of men. Let's give our best, brethren. Let's pour out our hearts and worship to God. And as we mentioned the Corinthians, we go to chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians 14 and we see there that what we do in the assembly is going to affect the atmosphere. What I do, the way I stand before you and preach, and I apologize as I was losing my voice last night, I was struggling through that lesson and I felt bad about it because we're in the presence of God and I did not want to be a distraction. I wanted your focus to be on God and to to, to preach from my heart the things that we were looking at in the Word. I apologize for that, but there wasn't anything I could do about it. But we need to offer our very best. It needs to be a worshipful atmosphere and what we do affects that atmosphere.
Simply, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. What we do affects the atmosphere. And so our handling of the worship service should assist people in recognizing that God is among us. And we see that in chapter 14, 22 through 25. And so, as we see a heavenly example in Revelation 14 and verse 7, He says, fear God and give glory to Him. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Let's fear Him. Let's give Him glory. Let's worship. And so, the characteristics of growing churches, growing churches emphasize, sorry for the typo, or or it's not emphasis Bible teaching, emphasize Bible teaching and preaching, possess an atmosphere of love, demand commitment and conviction, and offer meaningful worship. I hope this has been helpful to us to draw near to God and to be a church that He wants us to be. Thank you very much.